Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Johnson, and with me today is David Farber, Roy A. Roberts Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Kansas, to talk about his new book, Crack, Rock Cocaine, Street Capitalism, and the Decade of Greed. David, thank you for being on the program. My pleasure. So you've written a lot of books, right? You've written over a dozen books or edited or written a dozen, over a dozen books on topics from, you know, 60s era social movements to early 20th century capitalism to modern conservatism. You know, what brought you to write a book about crack? In some ways, it's a perfect combination of a lot of the things I think about. On the one hand, it's very much a book about the history of capitalism, only it's capitalism from below. It's also a book about racial justice and the ways in which society thinks and treats people who have been left out of some of the mainstream opportunities we create in the United States. And thirdly, it's a story of political conflict. It's a story about how authorities try to really rain down oppression on a group of entrepreneurs who thought they were doing the best they could while they were playing some really bad cards in a very bad game. So in a lot of ways, it's the story of modern America, capitalism, democracy, authoritarianism, Racial justice, racial injustice all banged into each other. And in my mind, that's what the crack cocaine years were all about. I mean, just to give readers a sense of you know, the time period you're covering here, is when, do, when is crack really at the height of its popularity? The so crack cocaine becomes a commercial product right around 1983, 1984. And of course, to some extent, it still continues today. But from the early 1980s through the mid-1990s, crack was really a powerful presence in the life of a lot of poor Americans. And so why, how do you explain why it becomes so popular in that era? Yeah, you know, it's one of those other interesting things I've been trying to ponder. Why do certain intoxicants, why do certain drugs, certain narcotics become popular at a given time? You know, is it the drug itself? Is it the context? Is it society? I think crack cocaine really met the needs of a lot of people from both the supply and demand end in the 1980s and 1990s. Crack was a very powerful high that lasted for a very short period of time, that was very inexpensive to gain. And I think for a country that was economically divided and going through racial turmoil, crack really met a social need. And it met a social need for the people who sold it as well as the people who bought it. And that's what I tried to capture in this book, this odd, tragic, economic, social, political dislocation that marked life for a lot of poor people in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, I think what, you know, one of the things that the readers are really going to appreciate about this book is that you write about kind of crack, crack operations as uh, almost like a historian might write about uh, any sort of business. Um, and so you've written about some capitalists um, like Alfred Sloan and John Roscoe. I mean, are the people you write about in this book all that different from people like Sloan and Roscoe? Well, yeah, in some ways they're different, but they're really, <laughs> I think, captivated by the same idea, which is how to take their talents and make the most of them. They're the Horatio Alger boys of their time in a sometimes perverse sense of the word. Only their enterprise was an illegal one. 
and their attempt to catch the tiger of globalization came from below. I, I talk about this as crack cocaine as being a part of deviant globalization. And so it's another story of capitalism, but it's it's from below. When you write about kind of these crack operations and what does it take, get down to the kind of nuts and bolts, what does it really take to start um, one of the, a business like this and how, what does it take to operate one? So what made crack, I think, so appealing to so many hustlers on the make was that it really took very little capital. So really, if you had $100, you could start a small crack distributorship. All you had to do was find somebody who sold powder cocaine, learn the very simple to use recipe of how to make crack out of powder cocaine, baking soda and water, and then go out in the streets and start hustling your product. And I talk about it being a kind of fast nickel versus slow dime kind of business. Because basically, you could buy $100 worth of powder cocaine and probably in a day or so, re-up, double, and geometrically open up your business to where by two, five, six weeks later, you're selling thousands of dollars of crack every day. So, you know, low capital investment, easy to operate, value added, create a kind of distributed sales network, and you were a success in the crack business. I mean, talk a little bit about the, the, the risks of doing this and, and some of the things that um, you really have to do that perhaps a, a, someone who's running a legal business might not have to, um, to be able to sustain one of these businesses. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes this both tragic and uh, a hell of a story, I think. So when you operate a business outside of the legal system, you obviously have to prioritize certain kind of skills that you don't need when you're working inside the legal system. So you could start as a crack distributor at a small scale, and you probably could operate really at the margins kind of quietly and go about your business. But really in a kind of, I don't know, perverse version of what happens in any other enterprise, soon enough, other people start to try to take your territory. If you're a legal businessman, you can fight them with legal talent, with uh, patents, hopefully get some political support, regulatory relief. But if you're selling an illegal product like crack, none of that works. You can't go to a lawyer. You can't go to the police. You can't go to a judge. So you use other means. And those means, alas, are violence. So every contract, every sales, every distributor dispute eventually, quickly, became settled by violence. So the illegal narcotics business, and this is true of heroin as well as methamphetamines and cocaine and crack, becomes a very violent business quickly. And the nature of the crack business, because it took so little capital to get involved, meaning there was so much competition for market space, meant that violence escalated really fast and it became a really murderous business. And I think that's partially why crack became such a danger to both people in it to the communities in which it was sold, and to the United States more generally. And I think, as you've said already, that this really is essentially a story about capitalism in the 1980s and 1990s, and beyond just kind of the nuts and bolts of, of business. You know, you talk about this kind of the cultural products here and kind of this culture of greed. And you mentioned, the, of course, people like Donald Trump are part of that story. How does crack play into that cultural story that you tell? Yeah, I, I mean, what's weird when you start to treat crack not as a kind of mystified object, but as just one more business in a 
predatory capitalist era, you start to see how much these guys, these crack dealers, some of these guys who made it big, who became kingpins, you know, they, they see themselves as kind of Donald Trump's. They see themselves as Ivan Boskis and Michael Millikens. This is a time when the rules seem to be off, when people were leveraging buyouts, when they were using secret information to make huge stock deals, when all sorts of old businesses were being disruptive and often closed and destroyed, when people were selling off assets at any price to maximize profitability. These guys were part of the same culture. And they saw themselves as part of the same culture, only they were just on the other side of these kind of buccaneer rules of the 1980s and 1990s. So I'm not making a brief that crack kingpins are good people, but, you know, were they much worse than some of these other buccaneer capitalists? Well, yeah, because they resorted to violence straight up. They didn't just cheat people or throw thousands of people out of work. I mean, their business was operated at the end of a gun. So it became a harder world, but it's part of that same world, I argue, in which we were reinventing capitalism in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, that's a good transition into the next question, which is, you know, just the difficulty as a historian to approach this topic. Because the difficulty is, is that you're writing a history, as you tell in the book, of uh, a system that's clearly racist, right? One that's putting black and brown folks at, uh, in prison at alarming rates. And yet at the very same time, uh, in the period that you write about, that you, you you see a lot of black and brown folks calling for more punitive policies. And so you know, as a historian, how do you tackle those stories together? I think one of the strangest things in writing this book, and I, I've had some experience of this, is th- there's not particularly any good guys in my book. <laughs> You know, it's it's not like the crack guys are standing up for racial justice and they're going head to head with evil spirited white supremacists who want to just destroy black lives. You know, it's more complicated than that. You've got an era in which the rules seem to have broken down, in which good jobs are harder and harder to find for people with few saleable skills. And you got people out in the hustle trying to make sense of this world. And the way some people made sense of this hard world was to do really destructive things and selling crack to poor people in black and brown communities or to white people, majority of crack users were white, is not a good thing. And if you lived in a community in which crack was rampant, you wanted it to stop. You didn't want your sister, your brother, your son, your niece, your nephew to fall prey to this very risky drug. And you didn't want to watch your car battery get stolen or your purse taken or your windows broken. I mean, you know, it was a hard world. So not surprisingly, you get a lot of black people in particular who want these crackheads, to use the pejorative term, to go away. And the easiest way to get them to go away was to put them in prison. So you had Jesse Jackson, you had Congressman Charlie Rangel from Harlem, you had a lot of pastors and preachers of all kinds in the black community saying, this is a catastrophe. We need to lock these bad guys up. And so, you know, to think of the carceral state as purely a racist institution is probably to oversimplify things. On the other hand, I do think what happened by the early 90s is a lot of poor folks, a lot of people in communities of color started to worry that the cure, in particular for crack cocaine, was worse <laughs> Than, than other solutions might have been. And so you started to get 
a real rupture point, I think, in a lot of poor communities about what to do about this catastrophe. Yes, I like to just dive in a bit more. And you, you have a you spend a lot of time talking about writing about the impact the crack has on particular communities. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, just that extensive impact that you write about. There's no doubt that crack had a destructive impact, especially on poor inner city communities. And part of that is because it's illegal. So you were always at risk. You were dealing with criminal elements. You were a criminal element to be part of that world. But because there was so much money that could be made in crack, it really became a very cutthroat industry. So you have two destructive elements meeting each other. One is the suppliers who are shooting each other, killing each other, beating people up in order to maintain their drug selling territories. Of course, if it was legal, that would not have happened. On the other hand, people who become habituated or addicted to crack cocaine, you know, they're desperate folks all the time. They, they need to keep coming up with 15, 20, 50 bucks a day just to keep their high going because crack only lasts a few minutes. So you constantly are on the hustle for more money so you can get high again. And this creates just really dastardly conditions in a lot of communities. I mean, crackheads are not going to gated communities and breaking into houses. They're going to their neighbors. They're going to their own families. They're on their own streets. They're tearing up poor communities. So, yeah, this this was a very ugly, angry, devastating drug for a lot of people. And then, then on the other side, you're writing about this kind of new carceral state and these punitive policies that are um, coming into place. I mean, can you use readers just kind of some uh, examples of those policies that really also had a disastrous ef- effect? So there's a couple of things I try to get across that I think are worth thinking about. We've paid a lot of attention properly so to the incredible racially unjust ways in which the federal government tackled crack cocaine, famously creating a 100 to 1 ratio in terms of the quantities needed to go away for a long prison bid between crack and powder cocaine. I mean, they're, they're both cocaine. The result of that was if you got federally indicted for crack cocaine, you went away to jail for a long time after 1986, five years, 10 years, 20 years life. But at the state level, what happened was equally dangerous, but different. It wasn't as clearly racially bound but because a lot of people were anxious and worried about the devastation crack was creating, the prison police industry became far more efficient at locking people up. And you started to see people who were just guys on the corner making maybe a hundred bucks a day who suddenly would get arrested once, twice, three times, and they'd end up going to jail for long periods of time, not usually on their first conviction. But on their third, and we just became more and more efficient at locking people up. And in the 1970s, if you got caught selling a small amount of drugs, often the cops just took your drugs and knocked you in the head a couple times. By 1990, in some ways, there was less street justice. You know, people weren't getting beat up to the same extent, but they were being thrown in jail. And we just, we just created this whole huge system to take people off the streets and put them in jail. And, you know, in retrospect, that caused more damage than it fixed. 
you have some great coverage of what happens in Chicago, right? I mean, what what is that actually? What, what happens in Chicago um, as they start to really ramp up the punitive policies and practices there? Yes, it's a perfect example. That's why I focused on it of this increasing efficiency of our criminal justice system or criminal injustice system in some cases. So in Chicago, there was an uptick in felonies between the 1970s and by the early 1990s. And there was a lot of violent crime going on. There was a lot of drug selling going on. And Chicago, without legislation, without public input, created a whole new judicial system to take on drug felonies. And they created what were called drug night courts. And so there was a second shift in the criminal justice system that was focused solely on drug felony counts, which means selling or distributing drugs. And these are people who, before these night courts existed, often just kind of got pushed to the side, didn't serve long sentences, often didn't serve sentences at all. But this new night court system created huge incentives to put people in jail. And eventually the federal government helps fund it. This idea spreads around the country. And we create this often second shift of incarceration for folks all over the country. So, you know, it's a it's a hard decision. I'm not saying it's a simple decision. Do you take people who are small-time drug dealers and throw, throw them away into jail? Um, you know, I think in retrospect, again, as I said before, this was a disastrous set of policies. I just like to end by, you know, uh, we have historians, we have scholars who listen to, the, to this show, uh, uh, this podcast. Also, uh, lots of people who are not in academia don't, you know, who aren't historians. But I want you to talk a little bit about the difficulty of writing about a topic like this, because as historians were, you know, so focused on sources they are often in archives. A lot of the, the stuff that you need to write this book are not kind of sitting in archives for you somewhere. But how did you go about writing this? Yeah, that was kind of the riddle. I, I knew for a long time I've wanted to write about the illegal drug world. Uh, I think it's such a big part of life in the United States, a big part of life anywhere in the world. I mean, so many people get intoxicated, they get high. It's part of our social fabric and how we deal with that human desire to get stoned or put under the influence. It, it strikes me as that's a part of our history we don't know how to tell very well. So I knew I wanted to write about it. But as you say, how do you write about people who live in an illegal economy? They, they're at risk if they talk to you. They're not people who are keeping a lot of documents. So the way in is, on the one hand, easy, and the other hand, really hard. So the easy way is people who get caught usually go through the judicial system. There's court cases. You can read testimony. You can read court transcripts. You can figure out how the cops caught them. You can get a profile of their business through the court indictments. So that was kind of the easy part. You can The other easy part is the political side. You know, you can look at congressional documents, you watch presidents give speeches. That part was okay. But the, the hard part was really explaining who were the drug users? Who were the small-time crack sellers? What were their motivations? How did they think about what they did for a living? And I tried to get interviews, and I did a few, and they were really rich and powerful. I actually lived across the street from a crack distribution ring for a while, and I talked to the guy who ran that ring, and he had all sorts of things to tell me. But obviously, most people who get involved in selling illegal drugs don't want to talk to an academic and have him write it down and <laughs> risk them going to jail. So it was hard. 
But ethnographers help, interviews help. Um, one of the funniest sources is YouTube videos. You won't believe what people are willing to put onto a YouTube video. So, you know, I, I had some stories out of New York in particular of guys who talked about their business. You know, search YouTube, crack cocaine. You'll be shocked at what you come up with. So traditional sources, untraditional sources, underground sources, interviews, you know, to something, to some extent, it's, it's piecing the scraps. But I, I think I got the story and I think I got enough of the story to tell it in a way that the people who lived it would recognize their lives. Well, David, thank you for being on the program today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. The book is Crack, Rock Cocaine, Street Capitalism, and the Decade of Greed. The author is David Farber. Thank you for listening to New Books in American Studies on the New Books Network.